What's up, shipheads? It's Bull here. And I am Dez. And we are excited. We are here to announce the launch of our new feed, the Party Like It's 90s feed. Listen, everyone loves the 90s. It's one of the best decades out there. Just thinking back of that time in your life in the 90s. On this feed, we're going to be tackling all things from that decade. We're going to be taking our favorite show formats and bringing them over to do so. Dad, tell me a little bit about some of the film and TV content we have coming their way. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're going deep into the closet and we're taking out that FUBU jacket and we're putting new batteries into our Tamagotchi. So we're, we're ready to go here, Bull. And you've got all the franchises that you already know and love. You've got movie drafts, you've got Take 5, and you've got these deep dives that we do. And we're going to really just go right towards the 90s. We're looking at year by year, the best movies of the 90s. And we're doing draft style, head to head. Then we're looking at some deep dives. We're talking about all your classics from the 90s. The Big Lebowski, Hocus Pocus, Cool Runnings. There's all kinds of great deep dives we're looking into the 90s for this one here. And then you got your take fives, your top five lists of all the things 90s. So, you know, you're not going to want to miss any of this stuff. So get your Furbies all lined up and enjoy. If that wasn't enough, we're bringing in all the rest of our network in to join us in building out this feed. We're going to be bringing in the Scary Movie Project team to do horror-specific releases of the 90s. We're going to be bringing in the sports team to tackle the dream team drafts of the 90s, make the best super team, one of the best rosters. We'll be tackling all of that. And if that wasn't enough, we're going to be getting jiggy with it and taking our draft format and doing year-by-year music mixtape drafts. Build out your ideal mixtape for any given year. We're going to be going down the whole decade. If you love the 90s, if you were born and you lived through the 90s, if you weren't and you're jealous and you want to go back and see what everyone's going crazy about, this is for all of you. So make sure you subscribe. Lots of fun content coming your way. And we're going to party like it's the 90s. Yep. Hey, there you are. Thanks for joining us again for Something From Nothing. I had the urge the other day to watch a documentary I'd seen before, uh, but it's been a while. The uh, documentary's called That Guy That Was In That Thing. Uh, it's a, from 2012, and I highly encourage you to check it out. It's streaming in a few places online. The whole idea is that the documentary interviews a number of actors who are in tons of movies, but they're not the stars of the films or shows, but they're immediately recognizable because they've been in so many projects. They're not necessarily background actors or extras. They usually have sizable roles, but they just don't have that superstar level uh, of the actors they work with. Some of these guys are uh, like Bruce Davidson, who was in the X-Men series. He was in Creepshow, General Hospital, and Seinfeld, to name a few. Uh, Mark Rolston, who was in Star Trek Enterprise, The X-Files, CSI, Profiler, Aliens, and Supernatural. And uh, Craig Fairbrass, who was in Cliffhanger, he was in The East Enders, uh, The Bank Job, and Stargate SG-1. It's a terrific film to watch if you're a creative. Uh, it shows these actors who are wonderful at their craft, discussing what it's like to have long and healthy careers, but just not be the lead. For the most part, they're fine with it. It enables them to move around in the film industry from part to part without necessarily getting typecast. Well, a couple of them admit they might be typecast as villains, but they feel it's flattering. They're the first ones a casting director thinks of when a certain part comes up. Uh, I think it's the same way with writers. If you're versatile and can write in a, a number of different genres, you can always, uh, you know, if you can get away with jumping around a little from sci-fi to horror and fantasy with little trouble. In both cases, you're flexing your creative muscles and honing your craft. 
Again, if you haven't uh, had a chance to watch it, it's called uh, That Guy That Was In That Thing. It's nearly 10 years old, but it is a, a wonderful uh, video, even if it's uh, just to meet those people that keep popping up in your favorite TV shows and movies. Equally entertaining is the series is the uh, sequel, That Gal That Was In That Thing, about actresses in the same situation in Hollywood that just don't get the big roles but are always in those shows and you recognize them immediately. That one came out in 2015, and you can find that online as well. Well, thanks for joining me today. We're going to chow down and we'll get a dose of mathemication. I'm Matt Betts, and this is Something From Nothing. My guest today is Laura Bickle. She grew up uh, like me in rural Ohio and like me, uh, according to her bio, read too many comic books. And uh, uh, apparently, according to her bio, read them out loud to her favorite Wonder Woman doll. And now she writes stories and uh, reads them to her cats, which I think is a, is a good upgrade. Uh, she has written the Main Shift series, the Crows series, and the, uh, the Crows Curse series, excuse me, and the Wildlands novels, to name a few. Her latest book, The Underworld Library, which is Hellbury Book One, just came out in March. That's a, that's a mouthful, Laura. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, didn't practice saying that in front of a mirror a few times. I just thought it looked good in print and ran right. with it. <laughs> right, yeah. Walk into a, a bookstore and ask for it that way. They're, they're going to ask them to, what book are you? Come on, get it out, get it out, let's go. <laughs> but The Underworld Library just came out in March. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Very good. And uh, so how's everything going for you? I haven't seen you. We usually, us being both Ohio writers, I usually run into you at uh, conferences. I see you, yeah. you know, at various things. And, and obviously we couldn't get together lately. How, how's everything going? Um, well, there really isn't much to do in lockdown except write. So right. <laughs> I've been writing and, and reading to the cats and, right. uh, you know, doing the usual thing. Uh, That's good. Um, brainstorming and, and it's, it's kind of good having the silence a little bit although I kind of get stuck in, on the same ideas when I'm walking mm. through the same rooms but um, it is kind of good to have a little quiet to work I guess mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it actually right? has been weirdly productive for me so <laughs> yeah I I've, uh, I was really productive in about the middle of it I was finally got myself to say okay look you've got all this time don't waste it and I got on a roll and then it kind of ground to a halt a couple months ago where I'm like stuck on something and so I'm oh. doing a few other little projects but still trying to finish that one big one. Mm. Uh, aside from uh, reading your comics to Wonder Woman, uh, are, are comics kind of what gave you the reading or the writing bug? Was that something that really got you interested in storytelling? Well, I think I'd always been writing since I was little, and, you know, we had pets, and I would, you know, make stories with crayons. And uh, then when I got a little bit older, my mom was a school librarian, and uh, she would uh, go into the library on... Uh, during the summertime and, you know, to organize the books and get things ready for the next year. And I would go in with her and sit in the mythology section. It was this beautiful sunny nook and I just read everything that was there. <laughs> right. I, I did mythology and I also went into sort of the the cryptozoology or, or the, the, the early Bigfoot books and, and stuff like that. And I would carry home just a bundle of these weird mysteries and, you know, strange creature books and that that were nonfiction and uh, take them home and read 
read those by the by the arm load. And I think that's kind of what got me interested in weird and, and crazy stuff to begin with, at least. Uh, so at what point did you decide you were going to start writing your own books or stories, uh, you know, actually putting them down into, you know, like a full a full series for, you know, something a little more serious or a full set of chapters for something a little more serious? Well, I never really seriously thought about it as a career. I thought that, you know, you do something else to make money and then, you know, you, you do whatever you do as a hobby. But I think maybe about mm, 12, 15 years ago, maybe, I, I was still writing as a hobby and I thought maybe I should try just to you know, see if I could get some of it published, see what happened. And I got amazingly lucky. <laughs> and I uh, started off with a series for Pocket Books, uh, the Anya Kalinchik series. Uh, it was a two-book series about a woman who is an arson investigator and a ghost hunter in Detroit. And she has a fire salamander familiar, and they go on investigations, spontaneous human combustion, things like that. I think that's probably about the time I met you. I, um, those took place in Detroit, I think. I think I met you at a, uh, a conference here in Columbus when they when they were coming out. Um, so, how did you approach those first ones? I mean, did you did you take classes, or were you sort of self taught, or how how did you decide? Here's how I'm going to approach this. Well, I kind of read voraciously, and you know, I, I had urban fantasy was relatively new at that time, and I had kind of a sense of you know, this is the rhythm, this is the trope, this is you know, how this kind of book is supposed to go. And so I just tried it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <You> know? <laughs> yeah. Looking back, perhaps, you know, maybe I should have, you know, taken it a little bit more seriously, but <laughs> it, it seemed to work out fine. Right. Now, were you plotting or pantsing or, or, in, or what were you doing? Did you just kind of go for it or did you have a, an outline of some sort? Well, I, the first book that I wrote, which mercifully is in a shoebox under a bed somewhere that will never see the light of day, I pantsed. And that took me like four years to get done. And I, I realized that that was not going to work because it just really wasn't going to. So I started plotting and I plotted those books and I've plotted every book afterward. And it just wound up being a lot more efficient for me. Because, you know, staring at the blank page is just scary for me. I, I want to know where the heck I'm going. I don't want to jump in the car without map and GPS. I just, I just want to know because it's, 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 it's my security blanket. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, my first couple, I, I pantsed and, you know, similar results. I think the first one took three or four years and the second one at least, at least three, I think. And I, I, but I still was sort of clean to that idea that I know what I'm doing and I know where I'm going. Um, but then I started having to do a, a outline. I had to do an outline for something that I uh, submitted. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, when I was doing this uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs book, they asked for a thorough outline. I hated that idea, um, but it really helped me. I mean, it was really like you said. It, it wasn't just a, a roadmap. This was like detailed directions because it was such a long outline. And so anytime I got lost or couldn't figure out what to do next, I knew what was going to ha- how the next chapter was going to start. So I could go and start that chapter and keep going. And then suddenly I'd go, okay, well, this has to happen where I was stuck or this chapter doesn't happen, you know? So uh, I'm still a fan of pantsing, but I, I've, I've come around to understand that uh, uh, writing a synopsis, even a short one, is going to help me in the long run. Um, is your process different uh, when you're writing a standalone as opposed to uh, a, a series that might have a multi-book arc? Well, I think that for a multi-book arc, if I'm working you know, with traditional publishing, uh, usually your editor wants to know what you have in mind for a sequel before you start wasting a bunch of their time and hand in a, <laughs> right. you know, a, a sequel book yeah. that they look at and they go, what? <laughs> right, right. So uh, usually what I've done with editors is I just, you know, do like a five page synopsis of just the general arc. 
and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Do you have any feedback? Yay, nay, you know, what do you think? And uh, most of the time, I think that they're really, you know, happy to have that. And if it's something that they they can say, yeah, don't do that. We've got another book in production that's similar to that or whatever. You can head off a lot of snafus at the pass with that, I think. Yeah. And uh, when you talk about what you're going to be writing and, and, and you know, getting with an editor, I know you, you mentioned before we came on the, about science fiction, you usually do uh, more along the lines of uh, urban fantasy. I think you've said you've done quite a bit of. Is there a particular uh, genre you prefer or is it kind of whatever idea hits you, you want to kind of stick with that until you, you get that idea out or, uh, or is it uh, more organic than that? Well, I'm kind of at the point now where I like to play. Um, I definitely have done a lot of urban fantasy, but uh, the Underworld Library most recently is kind of a dark, epic fantasy. It's almost horror, which was a lot of fun. And I finished a uh, sci-fi that I'm shopping around. And, you know, I love all flavors of speculative fiction. It's, it's fun to be able to, I think that if I feel like I'm getting writer's block, it's a lot of fun to be able to switch to something that's a little bit different and explore in that way and get refreshed a bit. Yeah, and it's it's tough when you kind of let yourself get stuck in one or or get sort of pigeonholed in one by somebody else when you really have all these other, you know, ideas, these other things that don't really conform to a certain genre or might not be the one that they want you to write in, you know. Um, and we were talking about uh, writing those arcs, um, and you for a while were writing under a pseudonym, right? I did. I first started with Pocket Books, and I ha- sold uh, two series at that point, and. Uh, it- I couldn't be Laura Bickle for both because it would have been kind of confusing for the reader Ah, (laughs) to know what was coming next. So I picked my middle name and my husband's middle name and became Elena Williams for those. And uh, I haven't gone back to uh, that pen name, but, you know, sometimes I think about picking up a new one. Like I'm thinking about with this sci-fi that if it goes somewhere or, you know, if I self-publish it, can I still be Laura Bickle for that? I'd like to be. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and and so really for you, and I think a lot of the people I know that use uh, names like that, it's mainly to avoid that confusion or, you know, to, like we said, we don't really want to get pigeonholed, but somebody might love your, uh, uh, you know, sci-fi, but not be a big fan of, you know, uh, urban urban fantasy or, or whatever. So really, that's just a way to keep those separate from... Uh, from certain readers that might, you know, might have an attitude, you know, because you're you're very open about it. I mean, you're 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 um, for you, you have your pseudonym on your website. Also, writes under the name of this, so it's you know, uh, people ask why you would do that, but I think, like you said, it's really just a differentiator for the reader. Yeah, and it's. I think that sometimes you know, for a lot of my friends who write in, uh, like I have a friend that writes. Um, you know, erotica, and she wants that definitely separate from, you know, the sweet romances that she's writing. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And hers is very much a closed pseudonym that she's not very open about. But, you know, sometimes you want to rebrand, sometimes you want to do something different. And it's really kind of cool. It's like going back to the comic books and being able to have a secret identity and be, you know, Diana Prince for a little while. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that uh, you had, you had joked when we first got started, you didn't know if you'd have too much to talk about. But I love your blog because it is um, rich with your insights about how you write and, and how you got to certain uh, stages. Uh, and as you talk about comic books, you have a great uh, a blog post that talks about collecting action figures. Oh. And you said, uh, <laughs> you know, I had the Linda Carter Wonder Woman doll. You said I had some G.I. Joes that were in mm-hmm. the dream house. But I think that's part of what I, you know, helped me start. 
start storytelling is that I had these action figures and they, mm-hmm. I wasn't going to reenact the movie or the cartoon. I was going to have my own adventures. And mm-hmm. that was, you know, leading me to have a plot line and to have, you know, various arcs, I guess. Um, maybe not at first, but, you know, there was a lot of explosions and, and things you know, <laughs> getting thrown around to start with. But I think that uh, that was a great introduction for me uh, to, to telling a story. Well, I think it was, too. And actually, you'll kind of laugh because as I'm sitting at my desk, I'm fiddling around with a Skeletor action figure (laughs) from He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. (laughs) You know, I I think it really is. They are storytelling tools for for kids. And, you know, at that time that I was a kid, there were all kinds of fantasy action figures to be had. You know, there was She-Ra. I mean, it was it was great. All the neighborhood kids would get together and we'd put Castle Grayskull out in the backyard. And we'd have epic fantasy wars that would last whole summer afternoons until our moms told us to come home. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, I had yeah. a friend that lived a street over and, you know, he had like the big things for G.I. Joe. He had the, oh. the aircraft carrier. No, and he had the, the aircraft base, carrier. <laughs> and the, and the, the huge jet, you know, that was I was so I was I would bring over all the figures and we would use all of his stuff. Because he had oh, wow. the primo, the primo setup, you know, in his basement. Uh, so yeah, and so I don't know that everybody took the storytelling as serious as, as you or I might have, but um, <laughs> it was it was great, and it gave me that you know that idea of, of you know someone to bounce things off of, even if we were just doing a story and they didn't want to tell the good guy story or the bad guy story or whatever. We at least uh, managed to, th- to to hack something out that we could all agree on for a while, and, <laughs> and I could go home and maybe rewrite it myself. Uh, but you also said it was your first exposure to fantasy as a genre. I mean, and, and for me, it's the same with you know Star Wars or or He Man or whatever. Um, it, Star Wars was obviously uh, for fantasy and for sci fi was my first exposure. Um, I remember seeing that was my first movie in a theater, uh, and I was like six or something. And I remember bits and pieces of it, but uh, you know, it became one of my favorite movies and genres to play around in. Oh, yeah, Star Wars. I, I think that that is probably the first uh, movie I remember seeing at a drive-in. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. You know, my back first, in yeah. the day. Right. Well, I, I was just, I forget who I just interviewed, but I told him my first movie at a drive-in that I remember was Jaws. My parents, when I was like oh, wow. five, took me to see Jaws on the oh, giant wow. screen. So that that stayed with me for a while, you know. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of these uh, things were just, uh, you know, I had no idea, concept of sci-fi. And that was also what led me into comic books was I started buying Star Wars comic books. I, you know, I bought the adaptation and then they started telling these all new stories. And about the same time Battlestar Galactica came out. So here was these terrific uh, new sci-fi stories with characters I was familiar with. So it really managed to kind of ease me in there and, and, and really get me interested in new uh, stories in sci-fi. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a great introduction, you know, for me as as a girl to actually be able to see that there were women in sci-fi that I could sort of, you know, play as, you know, there was Princess Leia, you know, there were, you know, female characters in E-Man, there was uh, Tila and Eva Lynn, and of course there was Wonder Woman. And I hadn't really been exposed to that before. So it was a great opportunity to get out and play with the other kids in the neighborhood and also to connect with the idea of fantasy in a way that I really couldn't before because, you know, it was a bunch of guys that were throwing their action figures at each other. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, I got my first G.I. Joe was my, probably from my brother, I guess, who had the, the, the tall ones, the, the original G.I. Joe. Oh, those. With yeah. the fuzzy heads and the, you know, and they, I don't think there were any uh, women in those, that action figure line. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was just all a bunch of guys shooting each other in the original G.I. Joe's. 
So, yeah, you really didn't have a lot of, I mean, even in Star Wars, you had basically Princess Leia and that was it. But you had Princess Leia as an action figure in every outfit she ever had in Star Wars. So right. <laughs> eventually, so that was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a, you know, G.I. Joe had a few, had quite a few women, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. still not nearly equal, but uh, still a lot of women figures. So yeah, I mean, about that time when figures started kind of blowing up, I, I guess that was uh, around G.I. Joe and Star Wars and He-Man. And um, there were just so many other ones that didn't last very long, but you know, it was great because they would be really cheap and they could just be like, you know, the guys I blow up or the, or the background players <laughs> if I go and buy a clearance figure or something. But um, but now, you know, I can't afford to buy action figures anymore because they're like, you know, the Star Wars Black series are like uh, oh my goodness. Know, 20 or $30 <laughs> or more. You know, they're really expensive. Uh, I still yeah. have continued to collect a little bit, but I have yeah. to be judicious about it. Like there was a, a oh, Snake yeah. Mountain that went for sale a couple of, uh, no, I think it came out this year and it was like $800. And I'm oh, like, geez. wow, this is a lovely work of art, but where am I going to <laughs> store it, display mm -hmm. it? And right. that's that's a cat dental right there. I could get my right. cat's teeth cleaned. <laughs> right. right. Well, you know, I, I collect some of the Godzilla figures and, you know, some of the smaller ones. I definitely, but they have the ones that are, you know, massive. Are my kids Legos? They have very detailed Star Wars Legos that are right. three and four and five hundred dollars that I'm like, I don't think we're going to be handling those anytime soon. Yeah, my husband really, really loves uh, the Star Wars Legos, and you know, for <laughs> holidays, it's. I'm like, okay, what, what, what is what is something that's sort of in the affordable range? <laughs> <laughs> What's a starter Lego that we can get? Right, yeah. right. Well, I took my kids to Legoland uh, in Pennsylvania, which was so oh, much wow. fun. And you could take your little minifigures, and all of the uh, people that work there have their name tags that are made of like a you know the Lego backings, and they would have Lego figures stuck to their. Uh, their name badge. Oh, cool. And, it, and you could go up with your figure and say, hey, do you want to trade? And they would, you know, take off their name badge and they would trade you one of theirs for one of yours. And just about any store you went into at Legoland, you could trade one that uh, with the uh, the cashier would have a big box of them inside. Oh, and nice. you could trade you one of yours for one of theirs. And it was a fun way just to find something new and weird and, you know, something somebody else might have built and traded. And then you could trade and get that one and find, you know, this you know, mishmash of different pieces. So that was a, a really fun trip for the kids and, uh, and fun for me too. It was just, uh, it was pretty neat. It was uh, more, better than, more, more elaborate than I imagined, I guess. <laughs> I didn't so. even know there was one in Pennsylvania. Now yeah. I'm like, hmm, road trip. <laughs> yeah, and it's not that, it wasn't that expensive for all of us. And they had, you know, of course they have a lot of vending areas, but they had, you know, one big place with just tons of body parts and, you know, different <laughs> ones I've never seen. And so it, it was, a, it was a really good trip, especially, you know, for like a little summer thing that didn't take us too long to get there and back. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, I still haven't hit any of the, the cool stuff in Disney, like the, the new star Wars, uh, you know, land or whatever they call it. Um, oh, have wow. you been, yeah. Have you ever considered going out to that or one um. of those? I was at, several years ago, I was at a convention that was in Orlando, and mm. a bunch of us decided after hours to go visit Disney, and um, I thought it was really overwhelming. <laughs> oh, was it really? Yeah. It was just like, everything was huge and busy, yeah. and you know, I, I was like, wow. <laughs> right. that, that whole I felt area. like I was about five. <laughs> <laughs> well, that whole area is now just so, uh, so much going on through there, you know, there's it used to be just like Disney and Epcot and maybe a few other things, but now it's like there's a Harry Potter place. There's this, yeah. you know, there's so much through there that it's all overwhelming just to get to it, let alone being inside of it, you know? Yeah, we, we did the Harry <laughs> Potter thing and I, I was just floored that 
<laughs> this existed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Was it was it cool though? Was it was it very well done? I yeah, it, it was. I mean, we didn't get to it until uh, I think it was after dark. It was they held part of it open for you know this thing with the conference, and uh, it was interesting. Um, and we did the Pirates of the Caribbean thing. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, but yeah. It, yeah, I was just sort of. Yeah, my, my my brain cells were blown. Obviously, I'm an introvert <laughs> who stays in my garret and sure, does not right? get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the way it is with a lot of writers, I think, when they go to the conferences. They're, on one hand, want to get out there and either meet fans or, or make contacts. But it, sometimes they can be a lot, like I said, the, with a theme park. But, like, conferences can be a lot bigger and a lot more in your face than you expect, you know? You kind of expect a lot of laid-back readers, you know, just sitting around talking, and it's not always like that. It's uh, sometimes a, a pretty big crowd. Yeah, a few years ago, I went to uh, SDCC. Ugh, SDCC, yes. Oh, yeah. For the okay. first time, and I, oh. I, I, that was a blast. I mean, just right. the costumes, getting to see the wonderful creative things that people come sure. up with. I mean, I was just in awe. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were also talking about Dragon Con, and, and mm-hmm. my I've only been there once, and I want to go back because I have some you know I have some friends that that uh, are in charge of tracks and things there. But it, it was so overwhelming that time I went. I, I still want to go back, but you know it's five hotels. It's you know just a <laughs> constant stream of people on every floor of those hotels, just about, and a stream of people between the hotels. It's like okay, I cannot get away from people to save my life. <laughs> Uh, which was, you know, exhilarating. And like you said, the costumes and the programming is all uh, just a constant stream of everything all the time. So um, I miss the smaller cons right now. I'm ready to ease back into those and then work my way back up, I think. Heck, I need to ease myself into the idea of being in a grocery store again. I need to start really small. <laughs> right? Yeah. I was. I made this mistake of going to Sam's Club the other day, and uh, it was uh, it was not a pretty uh, picture, not a, not a happy time for me. There were a lot of people there. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> but uh, some of the other blogs I was I, I had noticed that I wanted to talk a little more about um, uh, learning to set boundaries in life and in writing. And, and, and uh, part of that is guarding your time. And I think other writers probably have the same problem, but I definitely um, I don't always treat writing like a profession like I need to be there from not necessarily nine to five, but I need to be there this time, knock out this many words. And if. Uh, if I don't, I, I have to stay at work late. You know what I mean? I, I, I let anything ruin my writing time, and I, I shouldn't be doing that. It's hard. I mean, I think I've gotten in the past year maybe more disciplined because with everything going on, it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's easier for me to kind of create a schedule and pretend like the world is still in order. Sure, right. <laughs> and stick to it. Yeah. Um, but I think just a lot of it for me has been just, you know, creating goals and timelines and doing the whole project management thing. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. And like I said, I generally don't do that. I kind of I like to wing it. And I've started using schedules for not just for this podcast, but trying to get my writing time on a, you know, on somebody's calendar so that I can see it and everyone else can see it and they cannot come and bother me. Well, you know what works for me, and I know that this sounds incredibly, um, it's not a Gantt chart, let me put it that way. <laughs> right, right. I have a, uh, a paper calendar stuck to my wall, and mm. for every thousand words I do, I get a sticker. <laughs> and it oh, looks nice. like Lisa Frank threw up <laughs> all over this calendar. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but, you know, That's it awesome. motivates me. I don't know. It's that fourth grader who likes to get gold stars, but now, hey, I've got little unicorn stickers. and sure. you know. Well, I used to, I, one of the writers I used to know uh, told me, I, I always used to see him at conferences, and I said, you know, I didn't see him at a few. And he said, well, I've started using this system where, you know, if I get this project done or this many words done, I can reward myself with something like a conference or something something else. 
and he just hadn't been productive enough to make it to a conference. So uh, I guess that sort of system of rewards, you know, can ha- can help you know any number of people. It might not always help me because I'll, I'll skip to the reward and say, "Ah, close enough," because I'm just not that disciplined, you know. Ugh. I used to do that with rewards, so but stickers stickers yeah. works for me. Okay, then that's tangible. I mean, the reward would be gone if I have a you know if, if a piece of chocolate is my reward or whatever. Oh, I've uh, done a lot of that gone. lately. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been discovering new cool treats to, at Target and other places, so uh, so I've been trying things out for my rewards for later. I guess I don't know. Um, one of the other things that I uh, I saw in one of your blogs and uh, a terrific analogy is that writing a novel is like falling in and out of love. It's like a uh, relationship, uh, state, different stages of a relationship. Um, and I thought that was very much appropriate for a lot of the writing that I do. You know, you kind of start with that, that, that exciting idea and where it goes from there may not be the best relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, it's, uh, you know, at the, the outset of the project, I'm in love with the idea and it's a wonderful thing and I, I can't wait to get going on it. And then somewhere around the middle, I'm thinking, is this actually going to work? <laughs> right, right. You know, did Absolutely. I did I bet on the wrong horse here? Should I have been, yeah. you know, involved with that other shiny novel idea <laughs> that's in my files? Yeah. And, right. uh, but being Absolutely. a basically monogamous writer, I feel like I've got to see it through to the end. And yeah. usually when I get to the end, I'm like, okay, this was a productive relationship. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> You can't actually say to a novel, it's not you, it's me. You know? Exactly. <laughs> you can exactly. just try and see how it comes out. Absolutely. And I, you know, there are beginnings, middles and ends. You said, and you said, sometimes there's shouting and sometimes there's tears. And I absolutely, uh, you know, can, can feel that. And a lot of the times when it, the tears or the, you know, the shouting may come when you're done with the book and, and you know, it's done, you know, you, you uh, a lot of the time I don't want to walk away from that world or that, you know, that, that if it's, a, if it's just a one book deal or it's, you know, not, not a trilogy or something, I kind of don't like walking away from that because I spent so much time there. And that's kind of one of the things that sometimes when a project is done, it's not up to you. Right. <laughs> I oh, mean, yeah. I've had a couple of, you know, series that I really wish they had gone on longer, but sure. sometimes right. they don't and you've got to be able to let go. And I think that's something that is really hard as a writer to do, that if you've invested so much, you know, time and effort into something and then it's done and then you've got to go create something new all over again. Right. And and sometimes, you know, I've gotten, you know, notes from readers asking if, things were going to continue, you know, for another book. And it's almost never up to you unless you're self-publishing or, or you know, you're, you're, you know, you're doing all of it yourself because the publisher, you know, may have not have room for it anymore. They may have another series like that, or they may have not gotten enough back on it to justify having you write another book or another two books on that. Right. And, you know, I enjoy my self-pub projects for that reason, that I can, you know, kind of do whatever the heck I want. Right. <laughs> and it's right. done when I say it's done. That's right. It'll go as long as I say it goes. Yes. Yeah, that's terrific. And, and so uh, being a sort of hybrid writer, um, there's definitely bonuses to either side. Like you said, you you have full c- creative control if you're – uh, self-publishing, whereas the other way you may not, uh, you know, have that much mm-hmm. control, but you may be a little more visible, maybe if it's mm-hmm. a bigger publisher. Right. Do you have a preference, or are you just sort of equally happy in either? Um, 
I, I like them both, but for different reasons. Sure. You know, there's the, the chance to, hey, you know, one of the things I'm really in love with with self-publishing is getting to play with cover art. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, cover art makes me so happy. <laughs> right. And it's, and you know, you can't underestimate the cover art anyway. You know, it's, you, if you're stuck with a crappy cover, there's nothing you can do about it, you know? And if it's, you know, if it affects sales or if someone doesn't want to pick up a cover that doesn't look good or for whatever reason, you're, you're kind of stuck. But when you have the final say, it's, it's like you said, it's not done to you say it's done. And I, I just, there's something that's kind of inspirational about it. Like, you know, I browse the Facebook groups where there are all these lovely artists that, you know, whose work I enjoy. And, you know, sometimes they'll pop a cover up there and I'll go, wow, I can write a book around that. And that's what happened with my Crow's Curse series, that uh, one of the uh, artists who I adore, Danielle Fine, had made this lovely cover of a vampire woman. And I thought, I haven't written vampires before, but I really like that. And I'm going to make a series out of it. And Danielle was like, okay, yeah, I can make more, <laughs> so more covers. The, right. So in the case of which came first, it, you know, it all depends on where you get your inspiration from, I guess. Right. And, you know, traditional <laughs> publishing is great, too, because, hey, there's the advance, which is, oh, yeah, which is awesome. Right. And then it's, it's nice to have, you know, all the, the wonderful layers of editing. You know, you're having somebody who's doing, you know, developmental edits, and then you have, you know, copy edits, and you have somebody who's proofreading, and I don't mm. have to hire all that out. <laughs> right, right. And, that's, and I don't think people always realize that. I don't think some, you know, newer authors may not do all of that and not realize that it's very important. Oh, it is. And it's expensive. That. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's no way around it. I mean, people I've seen said, you oh, know, my friend is, a, you know, writes or my friend uh, is in English classes. Maybe they can help me and maybe they can make it a little better. But there's nothing that's nothing beats a professional editor uh, or proofreader for your book. It's just it's. There's no way about no way around it, you know. Yeah, and you've got to have somebody that you don't have an emotionally fraught connection to who can tell you, "Hey, this thing sucks. <laughs> Change right. chapter three, scrap yeah. it, and start over." Right. You don't want to put that burden on your spouse or your friends. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, have your mom come and say it's lovely, or right. know, something like that. It's it's tough. Yeah, and I've worked with several editors, both for, with the publishing. Uh, uh, house and and hiring out my own and it's it's an expensive process and it's tough to find that person that you feel comfortable working with or, or feel comfortable with their feedback the way they give it or the way they you know do things it's uh it's just not easy to find that quickly. oh one time i had hired an editor for a project and she didn't grok my genre at all and she right. um persisted in telling me that my protagonist was not likable because she had an anxiety disorder <laughs> right and i was right. like oh yeah we're, we're no we're, <laughs> no is, yeah. It, that, yeah it's important to find somebody that knows what you're writing in or is familiar with sci-fi if you're writing in sci-fi or whatever because there's a definite lingo there's a definite you know pacing to some things and like you said there's just a definite uh expectation of a book in particular genres that just the average editor who's new to it or who specializes in, you know, uh, romances may not mm -hmm. understand sci-fi. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, yeah, it's it's difficult to get the right fit. And then you also want somebody who's reliable, who's going to get the stuff done when they say they're going to get it done, which right. is also a big challenge sure, when you're doing it. Sure. But you don't have to worry about it at all at the publishing house. So <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. It's not your problem with the publishing house. No. You know, they, they've got to deal with it. 
Absolutely. Very cool. And I, you know, that, that's one of the things I have a problem with. And I also have a problem with publicity when I'm looking for people that oh. I want to work with for <laughs> PR or publicity or whatever. It's, uh, it's a whole other ballgame where someone who, again, who might uh, do romance novels and, and it has a great track record of getting sales for that may not know how to approach uh, an urban fantasy novel or, uh, or a horror novel. Yeah, and I've had that problem with a couple of people that I've talked to and worked with. But, you know, it's not that they're not trying. It's just that they don't have that experience or whatever you want to call it, you know. Well, you, you, you want, don't want to disappoint readers, ultimately. You want to connect with a reader who's going to like what you're, what you're selling them. And you want them to have a positive experience. And you've got to, you know, find somebody who can connect with that particular audience. Because there's nothing worse than when a, a person picks up your book and says, hey, I think it's going to be X and it's Y. And they're, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. <laughs> one of the early, uh, I think when my first novel came out, one of the earliest uh, book uh, signings, one of these big author events that I went to, there was a guy who was maybe a table over from me. And I heard him every time somebody passed by, he pitched his book exactly the same way. And then the guy next to him changed his pitch every time so that it matched exactly what that person said they liked, you know. Do you like horror? Well, this book has ghosts in it. Do you like uh, nonfiction? Well, this is a nonfiction story about this, this, and this. And I, I, he made his book everything to everyone, whereas the guy next to him made his so narrow that it didn't sound like it appealed to anyone, you know. It was just hard for to listen to both of them not change up in, or, or not, you know, really – be honest with their 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 potential buyers or well the one guy wasn't honest the other guy was just very <laughs> was just very narrow i think it was one of his first sales but it's just really uh it's really a tough thing to figure out your audience and how to realize that not everybody's your audience so uh like the other guy seemed to think so Oh, exactly. Was, was a, yeah. One of those things when you're at festivals, you know, I always just kind of watch and see what the armload of books a person is carrying. And I'm right. thinking, okay, you know, if that person also has Matt Betts books, right. Right. Well, I think <laughs> maybe that's he last... might be interested in mine. <laughs> exactly. I think that's probably the last place we were, we were at the same event it was probably in Ohioana, I think. And yeah. I remember yeah. the last one I was at a woman coming by in a cart and I think she was just with a cart and just buying so many books. And I was looking at what she was buying and it was, you know, I was a little of everything, but she was sort of genre books mostly. And so it was kind of fun to talk to her about mm -hmm. what she liked and why she was buying so many books. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But that's coming up in a week, uh, this weekend, I guess. Uh, I guess by the time this podcast goes out, it'll already be passed. But Ohioana is coming up. For those of you who have never uh, checked out an Ohioana and you're, you live in Ohio, it's a great place to meet authors and find new books and, uh, and learn more about Ohio. They're just a terrific organization that brings in great authors. So look them up and, and, uh, and uh, check it out. Go to their library, or I guess you can't right now, but um, check out their library and find out what else they can tell you about Ohio authors. Uh, I think I have taken more of your time than I said I would. So uh, well, I had a wonderful time. I have one more question. The Underworld sure. Library just came out. What, what are you working on now? What's coming up next that you're, you, you may be able to tell us about or not? Well, I'm working on several projects um, at once. Uh, one uh, for higher project I can't talk about uh, at the moment. Um, I'm working on the sequel for Underworld Library, which is um, you know, going to be coming out later this year. I'm working on a shifter series uh, for folks who are animal lovers. Uh, this is about a, a woman who is a witch and a veterinarian, and she can speak to animals. Very and good. she's running afoul of a familiar trafficking ring, which is a lot okay. of was a lot of fun for me. Um, 
Yeah, so I'm, I've got my, my fingers in a lot of pies, and I really like it. It's <laughs> to great. be busy, yeah. you know? It's, uh, it's really great talking to you, and, uh, and good luck with all of that. And uh, hopefully we can talk again soon, or at least see each other in person again soon, if, if things open up a little bit. Definitely, and thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. It's great to actually, you know, talk about books. <laughs> <laughs> to actually get, get a conversation going, you know. Yes. All right. Well, I appreciate it. We will talk to you again soon, Laura. Okay, thanks. Take care. My guest is Liz Barrett Foster, whose professional career began writing marketing copy and uh, editing uh, for various magazines and made the switch eventually to writing about food. Uh, she's written more than a thousand articles and two books. Uh, she was also the editor-in-chief of the nation's number one pizza magazine, which I may have to ask her about. Uh, and she is the editor of eatlikearwriter.com. Uh, she says that site is uh, combines all the things that she loves most, uh, writing, food, and researching what others do for a living. Welcome, Liz. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Great. Uh, tell us a little bit about Eat Like a Writer. What what inspired it? Why why would you uh, want to talk about food and writing all together like that? Well, I mean, I've I've been writing about food for so long and reading about food for so long, and I I read other people's articles, and I always wonder like, what do these people do before they wrote about food? <laughs> and I think that's you know a lot of people wonder that too, and especially new writers who are getting into it wonder like, how did these people start, and how did they get these gigs, and like who who hired them, and how how did they do that, and so. I know I'm wondering it, and if I'm wondering it, other people are wondering it. And so it's kind of like where it all started. And so I thought, well, let me see if this has any legs. Let me see. You know, I know that writers in general like to share um, where they started and how, you know, they, they're just helpful people in general. And I think that for the most part, nobody really asks writers a lot of stuff. It's kind of like we're a byline at the top of an article. And you don't really know. It's kind of like, or this mysterious person, like it's just a name, you know, and we don't really get to talk too much about ourselves. <laughs> and that's because we're not really very egotistical for the most part. It's kind of like, we like tiling other people's stories, but we're kind of a wealth of knowledge, you know, and if I could tap into some of that, that'd be great. Right, right. I mean, you know, you see articles and almost all of them at the bottom online will have, you know, written by this person and usually they'll have social media or they'll have that person's website or something where you can read more of their stuff. And I don't know how many people actually do that. I mean, I tend to, if I love a writer's style, I will go and look for more of their stuff to read just because I want to be more immersed in how they tell a story. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But yeah. I feel like I... I interview, I guess where it came from also is I interview so many um, restaurant professionals, operators, chefs, things like that. And they all have such fascinating stories. And I feel like the same types of stories also come from any profession. You know, if you actually sit down and talk to somebody about like, where did you get your start? And how did, how did that progress? And why did you go in that direction? And, you know, I've talked to people who started out as lawyers and they became, you know, 
writers just, you know, they got tired of being a lawyer or, you know, there's somebody who, um, I profiled recently who is still a lawyer and on the side is like a vlogger (laughs) just because they like doing something different. And it's like, I like hearing that story of why did they decide to do that? Sure. And you see that in a lot of, uh, the food shows that I watch that, you know, they gave up being a lawyer to go open a taco truck or something because it wasn't fulfilling for them. And they would rather be making food and seeing people, you know, eating their food and, 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 and being happy about it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times you see uh, that someone left that big profession, you're kind of floored and saying, you were making how many figures, you know, and Mm -hmm. you decided to become this. It's always, uh, it's always odd looking at it from the other side, but not thinking about that person and what was making them happy or what was making them miserable. Right. And I think even this past year, so many people have made switches in their life. You know, it's kind of like this past year has given a lot of people, um, time to think about what they're doing with their lives and kind of, you know, not to sound morbid, but they've kind of faced death in in a way, you know, and said, like, am I doing what I really want to do? And maybe some of them have said, I've always wanted to be a writer, or I've always wanted to write a novel, or I've, you know, I've always dreamed of food blogging or whatever. And a lot of them have made that change over the past year. Absolutely. And I like that about the site. I think that uh, Eat Like a Writer kind of has its feet sort of firmly in both worlds, not just uh, talking to the writers, but also uh, talking about eating and cooking and chefs and the mm-hmm. restaurants that they that they frequent or that they own. Um, you know, one day I'll see a writer, I, I saw an article on writer's block and another day, you know, there's a recipe from a food blogger or a chef. Was that kind of the intention to, to, to really feature both sides uh, equally? Yeah, because I think that, you know, it would, it wouldn't be enough if I was just interviewing people um, and what they're doing. You also want to walk away with some concrete tips of what you can do with your own writing. So I want to talk about like, here's how you can make money with your blog, or here's how you can maybe start a podcast, or here's how you can, you know, uh, cure writer's block. And then I bring in, you know, other people to talk about how to do that. So I feel like I want them to also walk away with added tips. You'll get tips in those individual interviews too, because those people also share their own tips, but then just big blocks of tips like that they can walk away with in individual articles as well. Sure. Um, And I think you kind of answered this, but um, is there a sort of typical guest that you like to speak with or is there something you'd like to see interviewed on your, someone you'd like to see interviewed on your site? Do they, is there sort of a common denominator with these, these guests? Well, obviously, I want people who love food. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm seeking out people who really love food and also write. But um, I'm also looking for different types of writers. Like, I'll do bloggers and I'll do people who write for magazines. And then I've done a couple of vloggers. And then um, so I'm kind of, you know, going all over the place. And then also authors that have books and you know, I want to show that there's different types of writers too. You don't want to pigeon your whole pigeonhole yourself into a certain type of writing. You can do all kinds of writing, you know, and I want to show that. Absolutely. Um, and, and to that, a little more to that, um, it looks like a, a big part of a writer of being a writer and a big part of eat like a writer is talking about travel. Um, for me, you know, I, I not last year or this year, but I was usually on the road for conferences or workshops and I was flying everywhere and everything else. Um, and I looked at the site and it looks like there are many sort of travel stories as much as there are other categories, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you think it's important for writers and other creative people to travel and try new things and new food outside their comfort zone? 
Yeah, for sure. I think that when we first started, people were talking more about their travels and what they ate when they traveled. And, and then it turned into more of like, when I get to travel again, <laughs> and things like that. And so I kind of got away from those questions about like, you know, when, you know, when you travel, what do you eat? Because I, I started to see that more people were feeling like I don't get to travel right now, because I'm the same way. Like we used to go on, you know, three or four trips a year and just eat, eat, eat. And for the past year and a half, we haven't gone anywhere. And so I didn't want to drum up those feelings of not being able to go anywhere. So I kind of put a pause on, you know, those travel questions for now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for me, going to the conferences and what I really miss about them and, and, and the travel is that it, it really energized, you know, it really charged my battery. So when I got home, mm-hmm. I was ready to hit that next book or that next story or, or I was more excited about the one I was working on. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it just kind of, it, it, you know, unfortunately is not something that we can do now. So I, you got to work on Zoom or or find other ways to, to get yourself going. Um, for sure. For me, unfortunately, when I travel or even when I'm sitting at my desk, I am a horrible eater. I, I eat just terrible <laughs> stuff and I'm, I'm, I fall into a rut of just grabbing whatever I can and I sit there and I write and I grab a chip or I drink a soda. Um, do you mm-hmm. have any advice or have you heard from other writers on how to maybe eat a little bit better or, or more <laughs> adventurously when they're sitting at their desks or whatever? I mean, uh, yeah. even like a writer did, takes on a bad meaning for me at that point <laughs> when I'm sitting there shoving stuff in my face. Yeah, actually, we did have a writer, a guest writer, uh, write something about how um, eating like a writer, well, being a writer at home can make you gain weight or cause you to gain weight. And just being in that sedentary lifestyle and eating at your computer and deadlines and everything else, of course, yes, that has attributed to a lot of writers gaining weight. And, you know, and me personally, like that's when I see myself snacking the most. Um, And that's why I have that question about what do you snack on when you're on deadline? And, you know, you'll see that some people (laughs) will be super healthy and be like carrot sticks and celery and things like that. And other people will be like pizza and (laughs) chips and everything else. Uh, Bag of chocolate. Right. A bag of chocolate and things like that. (laughs) I mean, I know personally I'm worst when I'm on a deadline and I don't feel like doing my work. I'll go get chips. I'll get pretzels. I'll get, you know, whatever it is that I want crunchy stuff. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's yeah. the worst thing that, and I've recognized that in myself. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's better when I'm not on deadline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, I, I'm the same way. That was, that was uh, the thing I was thinking about was, you know, being on that deadline, not wanting to get out of your chair. People always say that, you know, part of writing is having your butt in the chair and writing. And, you know, yeah. if you've got a bag of chips, you don't want to go get the carrots while you're you know <laughs> in the middle of a good scene or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so turning the tables on you a little bit from some of your other uh, questions um, that you ask writers, uh, do you have a favorite recipe of yours that you, you like to share or, or you like to make yourself? <laughs> um, you know, my husband is a great cook. And so a lot of the times I let him take over <laughs> in the kitchen. <laughs> right? And I kind of call myself his sous chef because he'll <laughs> make like the main dish and then I am in charge of like all the sides Mm -hmm. So I'll make like the coleslaw and the roasted vegetables and Mm -hmm. the um, rice and like everything that goes along with it. And he'll like grill meats and he'll make quesadillas and he'll make tacos and all that stuff. And I'll make everything that goes along with it. So, (laughs) but yeah, I'm, I could never be a chef because I'm so bad at like timing things. 
Like yeah. whenever I'm in charge of like the whole meal, I'll have one thing like burning on the stove while the other yes. thing is like, right. I'm not good right. at timing when it comes to the kitchen. Yeah. So. I, uh, well, my, uh, my whole family is home right now. It's uh, my wife works from home. I work from home and my two kids are doing online school for a few more months. So I end up making dinner for everybody. And we started trying some of these, uh, you know, home meal kits and um, they're always either I'm slow or they're optimistic, but, you know, they'll, they'll say it takes five minutes of prep time and 20 mm-hmm. minutes to cook. And <laughs> I'm sitting here trying to make sure dish number one isn't burning while I'm putting the other thing in the oven. And mm-hmm. uh, they make it seem very, very simple. And uh, <laughs> it doesn't end up that way for me. <laughs> uh, it makes it a little bit easier to have everything I need in one place. But, yeah, yeah. But trying to follow their directions sometimes is uh, kind of an Easter egg hunt for me. <laughs> Uh, but we're getting there. We're we're making it through. Um, so when you started, uh, uh, we, we want to ask a few uh, pizza questions. You were the editor uh, for the Top Pizza magazine for a number of years. Um, when you started as an editor, were for the for them, were you surprised about how passionate people are about their pizza, about their uh, regional pizza or their city pizza, or, or did you did you find that to be the case? <laughs> Yes. I mean, every pizza place that I went to, that was the best pizza. I mean, yes. I mean, pizzeria operators are very passionate about their pizza. Like, there's no denying that. But it's awesome. You know, I've I've never met a pizza guy, woman, that I didn't like. I mean, they're some of the most down-to-earth people, friendliest people you could ever meet. I mean, that was like my favorite industry to be in. I've worked in several industries, but I mean, the pizza industry is like the best industry because the people are so awesome. But yeah, I mean, they're definitely passionate. I mean, when you go into their pizzeria, they're like, you have never tried a pizza like this before. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm always surprised yeah. when we get a new pizza place here in Columbus or, or something that's maybe not a chain, but a smaller chain where it'll instantly already have that fan base because maybe somebody had tried it when they lived in Cleveland or they tried it when they lived in Chicago and and suddenly the, these people have opened a new one in, in Columbus and there's already a line out the door because they've heard about it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's social media entirely or or uh, social media plays a big part of getting people interested in things like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm always surprised how passionate immediately people are about pizza. Yeah, I think social media plays into it a little bit now. I mean, Whereas before it was kind of like Yelp and things like that, but people don't really care about Yelp too much anymore. It's more about photos on social media and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, When you were there, did you find there was a universally hated pizza topping or uh, or was it sort of (laughs) spread out among uh, different camps? Uh, I think that um, a lot of pizzeria operators hated pineapple on pizza, but... Not necessarily the consumers. I think a lot of consumers would still eat um, pineapple, even though they say they wouldn't. Yeah, I see that argument a lot where people say uh, uh, pineapple doesn't belong on pizza, but I I still see it's a very popular topping. So yeah, I think one of I think one of the most surprising ones that people, one of the most hated ones among people, (laughs) among consumers, is probably the anchovy. But you'd be surprised to know that. Pretty much every pizzeria has anchovies, even though even though you wouldn't think they do. But even th- it's not always on the menu. Like you can get anchovies from like Domino's, Papa oh, John's, sure. whatever. Mm. But you wouldn't ever necessarily see it on a menu. But like 
it's at every pizzeria. <laughs> uh, I had a friend in high school, and when we would have little get-togethers, he would order his pizza with anchovies just because he knew no one else would touch that pizza. Right, right. Uh, but I, I fooled him. I eventually learned to, uh, you know, d- deal with it. I didn't love it, but I still managed to deal with it so I could get some of his pizza. And his little uh, prank didn't work anymore. So I know. They're so hard. It's so harsh. It's like <laughs> they're so good for you, but they're so salty. Ugh. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And and I see, you know, when I'm I'm looking, uh, surfing the web or I'm looking for, you know, other uh, news stories and things like that, occasionally an, a really weird pizza comes up. Um, can you remember any really unusual or odd topping or combination that you, you heard about? Mm, I feel like, um, you know, we used to do, well, when I was, they still do them, but when I was there, I used to help um, put together the pizza competitions. And oh, so yeah. y- you would see a lot of... Um, interesting combinations because there was one called like um the america's plate where like you would have different countries come together to bring pizzas to the you know to the competition and so one year a guy won that had reindeer on his pizza oh wow and so it was like Everybody was like, reindeer? It, t- <laughs> it tasted really good, and you wouldn't find that anywhere else. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in college, my, my, my friend and I used to see where we could find the hottest wings. And I know that people also occasionally really get hot pizza, really spicy pizza. Mm-hmm. And uh, like anchovies, it's a very acquired taste and not everybody's going to uh, get into that sort of thing. But uh, every once in a while, that's one that pops up for me uh, is, is yeah. the, the spicy pizza that's a little little rough that you have to sign a waiver for, you know? Yeah. I mean, hot sauce is really good on pizza. I mean, anytime yeah. you could put just like regular hot sauce, not flaming hot but yeah (laughs) not the dangerous kind yeah (laughs) well uh as we uh, as we get ready to wrap up here when you talk about uh eat like a writer um how do you pick the people that 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 you uh that you feature do you do they seek you out do you seek them out um just uh letting some of the people that may be listening know if they're they're uh interested in talking to you i mean i like it when people come to me but more often than not i seek them out um sometimes i'll see that somebody's you know, just come out with a new book, or maybe somebody's just made a career change, or, um, you know, I'm just seeing something interesting happening in the industry, and I want to talk to somebody about it. Um, Like, I have people coming up that, um, you know, uh, Diane Jacob, she writes, uh, will, she wrote, will, will write for food. I'm interviewing her about her new book, her revised book. Um, and, um, Jeff Ruby, who just left Chicago magazine, I'm going to be interviewing him. And, and then I have another interview coming up with a journalism student, um, that I was curious just about what they're, what they're teaching her and, um, <laughs> what she's <laughs> planning on doing with it right. and things like that. Well, that's um, so yeah, I'm just trying to get different takes on what people are doing and, um, but yeah, I love it when people come to me and say, hey, I've read your site. I would love to be interviewed, things like that. I love that, you know. Terrific. Yeah, yeah uh, when we uh, will have your uh, website in the in the show notes, but uh, Liz Barrett Foster from eatlikearwriter.com. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Sure, no problem. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us. My guest is Mac Gagne, an aspiring mathematical game theorist and a pulp fiction writer. She explores the deep-seated human need for escapism while straddling the fields of mathematical modeling and storytelling. Her work connects those two disciplines' shared desire to escape from reality into stories and simulations. She's a student at Duke University interested in studying the applications of strategic decision-making. She's a Program 2 student with a mathematically applied strategy a major of her own creation. Mac, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Hey, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. Uh, and after that intro, I got to say right up front, uh, when we get into any sort of heavy math discussion, you may have to tone things down for me a little bit. You know, you have to act like you're talking to a third grader uh, and possibly a third grader who's never heard of math. OK, so if it gets too complicated, you may have to hold my hand through some of this. Uh, we met at a conference a few years back uh, called Pulp Fest, which, uh, as its name implies, uh, talks a lot about uh, the pulp writers of old and uh, some of the new pulp writers. Uh, so I knew you had that sort of uh, storytelling and 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 uh, interest in in novels and and writing and reading. But the math aspect was something that uh, I didn't learn about until later. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting too because I think for a while I, I always considered to just kind of keep my my storytelling side of me and my math side of me completely separate. Um, you know, but I very much aspire to be someone who you know kind of lives in both spheres. But I think a lot of what my TED talk was, was kind of coming to this realization that the same reason that I write is the same reason that I do math. And I think a lot of people don't see that exciting overlap between mathematics and between storytelling. Um, and so that's what I'm hoping to dig into. You know, that's yeah. what I'm hoping to explore a little bit more. And I'm, I'm so excited to talk more about this. Right. And I also, when we first were talking, you, you uh, helped spearhead this regular storytelling podcast at Duke University with original scripts. And uh, did that sort of help you get ready for that uh, that TED Talk, at least uh, the uh, the being in front of people and the talking in front of people side? That did. I'm still like, I, I mean, I, I know that like TEDx and, you know, the way they kind of go about editing things, they make you look really good. <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> I, you know, still before any type of public speaking event, like you should have seen me. I was behind the stage like panicking and just you know <laughs> pacing back and forth I'm still very terrified of public speaking um but I do think that voice acting and kind of being a part of a podcast really helps though I can't lie that there's some element of hiding behind the microphone that's fantastic sure. you know it's like getting <laughs> right. a performance I mean uh, when I was you know I was uh, a radio DJ for the longest time you know you got to be in front of people but they couldn't really see you you know so if you messed up they didn't see you exactly exactly you know mm. oh, I, I, I could agree more. And I just, I really love that aspect of it. But I think Freshly Squeezed Pulp in particular was, I, I knew that I had always loved adventure movies as my, you know, my favorite. Like my first TEDx talk that I ever did was very much about how I pulled so much inspiration for just wanting to do what I want to do because of Indiana Jones as a movie. Oh, and yeah. I think coming to uh, coming to Duke was learning that like, oh, Indiana Jones comes from these classic pulp serials. You know, it, can, it comes from things Absolutely. like King Solomon's Minds and Doc Savage and, you know, dare I say the Tarzan novels themselves yeah. as well too and and kind right. of coming in and realizing that there's this this whole I guess kind of genre where absurdity and campiness is celebrated was just such a beautiful relief from this kind of heavy weight of academia of always having to be perfect of always having to be you know like getting these top grades and doing as best as possible but like it was fantastic because then on Saturdays I got to write and tell stories where dinosaurs were still around 
you know, and <laughs> right. that I could be a, you know, time traveling, you know, mathematician version of Jane Porter, you know? So. <laughs> well, I thought you were going to say when you, I thought you were going to say, and then on Saturdays, I could put a hat on and get the whip and I could go out into the desert and start digging for treasure, you know? Uh, as I was watching this, uh, this uh, TED talk, um, you, you have a lot of, early on in the, in the TED talk, you have a lot of pictures of you, uh, the younger you in costumes and, and, and in, I am assuming in plays or in Halloweens. Um, do you remember, you know, what was an early sign or what look back now and see as an early sign that you wanted to tell stories? Oh, this is such a great question. Oh my gosh. So I definitely, I was, I was kind of a bossy pants growing up. I can't lie. Like, I feel like if I met my like elementary school version of myself, I'd be like, okay, cool your jets, girl. You, you got time. <laughs> but I, I remember just like the height of my childhood through elementary school was just kind of running around and just playing pretend in the backyard. And, and everyone would always kind of gather around. They'd be like, what do we want to play? And everyone would be like, I don't know. And I'd be like, I have some ideas, you know, and I, <laughs> <laughs> just kind of sit around and kind of create these like extensive alternate universes. Like we kind of like come to the backyard and be like, okay, today we're pretending to reenact the battle of, you know, Lexington and Concord and I'm going to be George Washington. And, yeah. you know, it was, it was, I think just kind of that ability to sort of create these fantastical worlds and everyone was just kind of like, all right, I guess this is what we're doing. <laughs> and looking back, I, I definitely should have taken a lot more input on what other people wanted to play. But um, I think that's where I started realizing that I kind of had a creative mind for wanting to create different worlds, you know, and fictional worlds that just kind of existed for the purpose of enjoyment. So, yeah. Yeah. Here's your card. You're going to be a soldier. All right. You, you, you are a medic. You got to carry these people. And this is, here's your card. This is, you know, you're all, you know, you have a backstory. You've got everything for them. Um, and so back then, how, how did math fit back in? Were you a math, you know, were you into math as a kid? Was it, you know, something you excelled at or was it something you kind of figured out later on? Yeah. So I, I'm so glad you asked this as well, too, because this is a huge part of my math journey. I actually was like, math was my worst subject growing up. Mm. And and I think we have this idea in our culture that math is something that like you're innately born with this ability to do math, right? You know, right. that someone yeah. just is kind of born as a John Nash or as kind of this Bobby Fisher of mathematics. And you just mm. have this ability to do it perfectly from day one. And, you know, right. I think as someone who's about to graduate with a math degree from Duke University, um, but like, you know, also like I, there were instances in math uh, or in middle school where I failed math tests, like, mm. you know, where I was not good at this. And, and I think a lot of that and a lot of what I had to combat, especially coming here to Duke was that like, I didn't believe that I could do math, you know, in my brain and kind of how I had grown up sort of learning was, was that, you know, if I wasn't good at math as a kid, then I wasn't meant to be a mathematician. If I wasn't innately good at it, then it wasn't something that I could necessarily do. And I think I had to kind of retrain my brain to realize like, no, you know, in my brain, it always was math is the number one thing I want to do, but I can't mm. do it. So I'm going to go to whatever I can do next. But I had sure. to kind of retrain my brain and be like, no, if I really dedicate myself to math, then, you know, I, I then, you know, that, that that's what I can do. I can mm. be a mathematician. And I think mathematics was something that I realized you can kind of create these alternate worlds and these simulations using, you know, analysis and using data. And you can kind of be a quantitative storyteller in a way. And that those, you know, 
know, sort of, I guess, mathematical story worlds that you create can give mm. leeway to incredible discoveries, you know, in mathematics, in machine learning, and in artificial intelligence. And so I think coming to Duke was kind of this revolution in my brain of being like, this is what I want to do. And I want to take that, you know, endeavor to tell stories and I want to try and interpret it in a quantitative light. Uh, so so was it when you, you, you got to Duke, is that when you start putting these two sort of things together, these loves of storytelling and math, or uh, did it take you a little while to start seeing the, the connections? Yeah, definitely. So I, I came to Duke and I realized I wanted to uh, study math. And it was kind of the best way I described it to friends is it was almost like, you know, I felt like math and I had like an abu- abusive relationship. I'm like, I don't want to love it. And it, you know, <laughs> hates me. And it's so difficult. Right. And it's so hard, but I love it so much. And so it was kind of like, you know, I remember sitting down and, and talking to a friend and being like, yeah, when I listen to this love song, I just think about my relationship to math. And she's like, okay, Mac, you like absolutely need to major in it. Getting ridiculous. And I was like, you know, okay, okay. I, you know, maybe I'll I'll investigate this. So I get this, you know, idea that I want to do math. And at the same time, and I know I kind of talk about this in my TED talk as well, too. At the same time, this opportunity to, you know, do freshly squeezed pulp work comes up and I'm like, this is too great of an opportunity not to turn down. So I guess I'm just going to try and kind of do both of these. And I think it was very much the fact that I was just like not sleeping and just constantly (laughs) doing math and constantly telling stories that kind of the line between the two blurred. And I started to realize that I was doing these two things for the exact same reason, for this exact same, I guess, kind of desire to escape and create alternate realities, you know, um, in fiction as well as in mathematics. And um, and then I think that that blurring of the line just kind of gave me a little bit more clarity of what it means to be a creator, but also that you can be a creator in mathematics as well, too. Mm. So we'll, we'll end up putting the link up in our story or in our show notes uh, for anyone that wants to go watch the TEDx that you did. But can you uh, tell us a little bit about the the content of the talk? How you kind of put all this together into you know this? How long did how long was it? Like not even ten minutes, was it? Yeah, I think it was like eight or something like something. that. But yeah, if you want to tell us a little bit about uh, what what this sort of result was and what what you're talking about in it, uh, uh, I, th- I think it was fascinating the, the times I've watched it. Yeah, I guess even just to give kind of a quick recap, you know, I know a lot of what I start off with is, you know, in my talk discussing that for so long, I thought that the fact that I wanted to kind of escape from my reality was a bad thing. You know, I thought it was something that only I did, you know, that only I wanted to kind of get whisked off to fantastical worlds and just kind of would live in sort of, you know, I guess, alternate realities in my brain in this kind of like maladaptive daydreaming sort of way. Um, and, and you know, I thought I was the only person who would do that. And, and for so long, I considered that that was just my greatest fault was that I just couldn't swallow the pill of reality or something like that, you know. Right. And and I think what I came to learn through Duke and, and, and kind of finding success in mathematics as well as finding success in storytelling was that this desire to escape that, you know, kind of is a part of the human experience and is a part of what it means to be a creative thinker, uh, you know, that it very much has this adaptation is that you, you go off and you try and create new worlds and in trying to create new worlds in fiction and in mathematics, you actually are learning more about reality as is, you know, so it's kind of this roundabout way, you know, you try and escape reality, but in a way you end up learning more about reality than if you had just kind of, you know, not done this thing in the first place. So much of 
about uh, you know storytelling uh, without realizing it breaks down into uh, into mathematics anyway. The you know finding where you need to hit those story beats throughout a story, you know f- figuring out where you need to have you know the ending or the uh, or the you know the crescendo or the decrescendo of a story or or whatever you know uh, without realizing it. As long as you're you know sort of paying attention, like myself, I never really realized that that sort of aspect of a story um until i until i took a uh, just a, a workshop one day and they kind of showed the the peaks and valleys of, of certain movies and certain stories and uh it really kind of opened my eyes to what i was doing and how that related to everybody else's work definitely definitely well and i think it's really fascinating too i mean here at duke i feel like you know duke being duke you're kind of right. pushed more into like oh we're going to talk about high literature and i'm like i don't want to yeah. talk about high literature right. i want to talk about pulp <laughs> literature I want to talk about dinosaurs and planets and ladies with laser guns, you know, that's what I'm interested in. But um, I think one of the cool things that I've learned about in in some of my, uh, I guess, more literary studies here at Duke is the idea of narratology of this idea (laughs) in English, you know, in kind of English studies, taking Western, but also Eastern narratives and international narratives and really studying them from such an analytical perspective as to, you know, take out the tropes and take out the archetypes and take out the Mm. plot structure. And to me, that, that, that really just feels formulaic. That feels like right. we are trying to create formulas for how we tell stories or kind of derive formulas from how we tell stories. And that is just an innately mathematical thing to be doing. And I don't sure. think a lot of people realize that that same mode of analysis is exactly what mathematicians are doing with large data sets. Hmm. Yeah. And I think you see that in in uh, movie storytelling. Like you said, w- when you start seeing the same story over and over, maybe with this plugged into that or that plugged in, you know, we're going to take out the uh, the female lead and put a male lead in, but it's basically the same story that you saw with this movie or this movie. And it's, it's you you talk about a formula, it's, you know, this guy does this and this guy does that and, you know, that ends up here. And you see it so much through uh, the story, through, you know, several movies over the course of so many years, but it always seems like they, they kind of bunch up together and you see, you'll see a, a cluster of movies of about uh, a, re- a revenge movie uh, or whatever. Recently, my wife and I have been seeing, a, uh, just going through um, uh, Netflix and some of the other things, it, there seems to be a lot of uh, revenge stories uh, with, with a female lead. I, I saw, uh, we, I forget, with Peppermint the other day. And then we saw like another movie. We're like, isn't this almost exactly the same story as Peppermint, but with X changed, but everything else, you know, pretty much the same? Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so here for the female rage story yeah and i just saw another one was coming too and i said isn't i looked at it and i thought I, for a second there, i thought it was the same movie and then i realized it wasn't the same lead for it so it, and it seems to be you know cyclical well you'll have you know all the asteroid movies with this changed and that changed and then all the you know the rage stories with this and it does become very mathematical and, and when you go to um storytelling conferences or you go to a writer's conference you'll see that they're you know it's not necessarily that they're teaching you to write exactly the same story, but a lot of the examples I see them use end up being similar stories or similar plot structures for, you know, uh, what, whatever it might be that day that they're talking about. But, um, and I, and unfortunately I think it kind of trains writers to try and, uh, aim toward a, a trend sometimes. Um, I'll, and I'll see a lot of writers ask that question online. Hey, you know, uh, Harry Potter is ending. Should I write a, a kid's wizard story to, you know, whatever. And by the time you've written something and got it out there, that 
trend is gone. But but if you're aiming for that, you know, and everybody's aiming for that, you know, all the publishers are getting that, um, you know, it, it, it creates that void of new and original stuff that isn't, you know, formulaic and isn't, you know, and you suddenly get all these and, and then they have the really, really unusual stories that you really want to you know, go out and check out, uh, which is good. But unfortunately, all those other writers who have a book that is, you know, <laughs> Harry Potter only X, so, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think I think the coolest thing, especially about these macro trends, and you know, you mm-hmm. and I are, are kind of involved in the pulp sphere too. Is like sure. pulp has this this campiness element, you know, that right. like some of its best humor comes from this like self awareness, like this. Oh, I hope this lever doesn't send me down and uh, you know a secret tunnel or something like exactly. that. Uh, yeah. th- that just is so funny, and I think that's the cool thing about pulp is there's almost this ability to step out of the trope that you're representing and sort of make a small commentary about that, and I think. Think especially with this this podcast that I did with Freshly Squeezed Pulp that's coming out um, this probably this summer sometime, but uh, you know this license through ERB Inc as well too is you know we got to take a look at at the Tarzan series doing that which is a really defining literary I guess sort of like series that set a lot of these sort of you know Western tropes for pulp fiction in particular and yeah. and also you know just in that writers room get to talk a lot about you know analytically what do things look like like you know there's the dime store heroine there's the female hero you know she always has some type of like locket you know in this case it's like jane with tarzan's locket or there's the femme mm. fatale you know you have law of opar and you have tarzan as the hero and you have the evil villain and they mm. all have you know very distinct archetypes that are reproduced and you see them kind of occur and sort of cascade into a bunch of other stories and and you see this happen through the genre and then you see pulp get picked up by popular fiction mm. and and by comics and all of a sudden we're seeing these tropes and these archetypes and these patterns, you know, replicating into, um, you know, popular literature as well, too. And it's like, I guess it's just so cool to study that analytically, but also kind of dig into the roots of where that's coming from, especially within kind of Western pulp and pop literature. Right. And, and you know, when you look at uh, Indiana Jones at the time the first movie came out, I mean, it had so many imitators that just didn't do it as well or didn't decide to sort of subvert that and, and do something fun with it rather than trying to be the next Indiana Jones or, or whatever. Uh, and obviously they didn't last like uh, like like. Indiana Jones did. Um, so it's, it's you know, looking at that and, and looking at the other direction things could have gone. I mean, uh, as far as comics were concerned, you know, uh, Deadpool was such a great alternative comic. And then when it came out as a movie, uh, we were sort of entrenched in all of these uh, uh, superhero movies that, you know, DC and Marvel and, and good, you know, good versions and bad. And along comes this movie that's making fun of itself and, do it, and doing it very well and making fun of the people around it. Um, and, and now Disney owns it. So it's kind of interesting to see what they're going to do as far as a subversive comic like that or a subversive piece like that, whether they'll continue to push it or whether they'll you know water down some or try to oh that's a, that's a fascinating point with disney too because like to the point like they're setting the standards now you know right. the, all oh, the exactly. media that they have you know you've got the whole disney franchise but you've also got marvel you know and pixar like those are Star the, Wars, yeah. yeah exactly you know that's what's setting the bar so it's to, it's kind of like can disney even get away with doing subversive when they're right. in fact the people who are you know kind of i guess producing a lot of these patterns yeah. in storytelling yeah. i just i right. think it's fascinating especially when they're the ones being subverted 
in so many other media, you know, when, when somebody you know, makes fun of Disney, it's, you know, sort of punching up, whereas opposed to if Disney goes after anybody else, it's, you know, sort of uh, going after the little guy at this point, because there's nobody as big as him. Yeah, oh, exactly. I feel like the little guy teases Disney. Oh, haha, it's funny. Disney goes yeah. after the little guy. Oh, you're in legal trouble. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm surprised some of the uh, parodies and things that that lasted out there of Star Wars as long as they they did before, you know, legal action for uh, Star Wars or, or, you know, Captain America or uh, with their um, their connection with Marvel and everything that uh, there's it's, you can't really make fun of anything without hitting Disney somehow, you know. Right. Well, I feel like Marvel in particular is a really great example, especially for people in the pulp sphere, because a lot of comics rose out of early pulp literature as well, too. You know, like comic books, comic magazines wouldn't be a thing if it weren't for pulp magazines in the first place. So kind of seeing how Marvel is tackling not only so many different comic books, but how they interlock with one another, I think is going to be fascinating and also very essential to seeing how, you know, pulp fiction is going to continue sort of, I guess, discuss their individual stories as well as the interlocking story worlds that exist within the world of pulp too absolutely and uh for my book i got to work with american mythology comics doing uh a prequel for uh my carson of venus book and you know it was a lot of fun to be able to do a comic book and to uh to have that be an addition uh, canonical addition to my book and other things but uh i think they do a really terrific job with uh, a lot of those properties from uh edgar Rice Burroughs, they're, they're putting out all kinds of new titles and telling new stories, and they kind of kind of get that need to update things a little bit and step outside the box and tell good stories that appeal to everybody. Definitely, definitely. And yeah. I feel like that, and this is this is a point I made in the TED Talk as well too, right? Like Pulp is all about providing an escapist experience for an individual. But, you know, we're kind of in this, this you know, as, as we're learning as creators, as we're developing, we're just learning that there's just such a vast variety of people whose experiences you can be speaking to, right? And so that is what encourages bringing about, you know, these diverse narratives and creating relatable characters that everybody can kind of find their escape through and can find relatable experiences through as well too and and yeah like you were saying just stepping out of that narrative and and seeing like how can we how can we you know i guess uh, improve and continue to develop this further in today's modern age as well. Right. So uh, I know you 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 want to write, but um, as far as the degrees you're getting and the things you're doing in mathematics, what are you hoping to do with that in the future? What's what's your next step when you graduate? Graduating this coming spring, so actually in two weeks, I still wow. can't believe it. Um, but uh, I will be going off to graduate school come the fall. Um, not entirely sure. I'm I'm still making decisions based off of some of you know what I've heard back and everything. But I will be a PhD candidate in operations research come this fall, and hopefully I'll have some more news on where that's going to be yeah. in the next week or two. Um, but that is my hope is to go into uh, that. That'll be a four to five year program and getting my mm doctorate um, in OR, which operations research is essentially just the applied mathematics field of charting and modeling human decisions. So it's all about that simulation. It's all about that understanding how choice impacts your world and impacts your, you know, your choices and kind of the interaction of person with environment. Um, Very simulation, very computational, very modeling based. And I'm really excited to continue to study that further. Um, I'm also this coming summer, uh, I've been recently named as a Brooke Owens Fellow, which is a 
fellowship for women in uh, aerospace and operations research. So I'll be working as an operations research scientist at an internship this summer at Northrop Grumman's Space Systems Department. Um, I'm just completely ecstatic as a Trekkie fan that it's called Warp Speed Drive is nice. <laughs> the building that I'll be uh, working off of. But um, my hope as well is to, you know, while I'm trying to get this graduate degree, um, is to continue writing. I'd love to pump out some, you know, publications. I definitely have some projects in the works, uh, definitely Good. trying to find some outlets for some of those. So hopefully some more news on that uh, coming up in a little bit. Um, but I think following my um, following my PhD, what I'd be hoping to do is I'm, I'm particularly studying the operations research of emergency response. Uh, so I'm really oh. fascinated with, you know, how we can create information systems to help advise strategies of how to save lives during times of disaster. Mm. And I feel like I, I, I can't lie. I feel like some of that decision is almost this idea of, you know, always love this idea of, of rushing into, you know, a crisis and, and mm. understanding how to navigate a crisis. You know, it's right. exciting, but it's terrifying at the same time. You've got so sure. many human emotions going on there. And, and I think the writer in me wants to know what that experience is like to be on the ground and trying to help people and trying to save lives. Um, the rationalist in me is like, there's so much help that math could provide this. There's so much benefit that modeling and simulation can do to help save lives in a kind of boots on the ground sort of way. Um, so I think I think the next four to five years of my life are going to be really research intensive. But following okay. that, I'm really hoping to do a lot more almost kind of like tactical, you know, like direct response to humanitarian and disaster crisis situations. Wow. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. That, that would uh, it would be interesting to see how mathematical probabilities and things like that could help in disasters or could help in decision making or, you know, where every, you know, uh, second, you know, I hate to be a cliche, but every second counts, you know, if you had some sort of theory or whatever that could somehow aid in that decision making and uh, make it uh, snap along a little faster, obviously that would be great for everyone. Definitely. Well, and even to give you an idea of kind of some of these, I guess, sort of strategies that have arisen out of operations research and game theory and kind of this area of mathematics. Um, have you ever seen the uh, A Beautiful Mind movie about John Nash's life? Right. Yes. So good. Totally one yeah. of the movies that inspired me to go to math, uh, oh, cool. go into math for the first time. But um, uh, essentially, John Nash developed this idea of um, in game theory of this kind of idea of the prisoner's dilemma of how do you make a safe choice when you don't know how your opponent is going to make a choice. So, sure. you know, you're kind of in a situation where if your opponent makes one decision, it could harm you. If an opponent makes another decision, it could hurt you. And so it's essentially teaching you how to to make a decision for your best interest, you know, so that no matter what the other person makes, you're always making the most optimal choice. And, right. and that was a really revolutionary idea that very much kind of founded and developed the field of game theory. But a lot of what I'm looking at doing is this idea of, um, so for example, my senior thesis, and by the way, I'm not mentioning these two to say I'm remotely anywhere near doing as cool stuff as John Nash. He's an icon right. and right. like yeah. totally not looking to, oh my God, compare myself to him in any way. Um, yeah. But, you know, my senior thesis is essentially I'm studying a triage event that happened during Hurricane Katrina um, at Memorial Hospital. It was a really famous case. There have been a bunch of books written about it where 
They had very limited resources, had to prioritize essentially who to give these resources to. And that was a depending factor of who could live and who could die and survive in this crisis. And it was a really brutal triage. And, you know, there was there was some really problematic legal implications. Some of the doctors started euthanizing patients. That's not the focus of my thesis. And I very much condemn that. That was not a good decision on the part of these doctors. Um, But a lot of what I'm looking at is there's this concept in mathematics called linear programming where essentially you have something and and you can optimize it. You try and make it as big as possible by understanding the constraints of, I guess, you know, how much of one resource you have and how much an individual person might need of it. Um, And so linear programming, essentially what I'm doing is I am applying it to this situation based on the limited resources that are had in an attempt to maximize the number of years lived. So Mm. in that sense, you are making hard decisions about um, individual patients and who gets what resources, but your ideal goal in running this based on the data that is publicly available is mm. to maximize how many years of life that you can preserve in people and in patients. And the exciting thing was, is, is, you know, I mean, once again, I'm working with estimated data. I'm still only an undergraduate is there was a substantial number of lives in my simulation saved when you use linear programming mm. to advise on triage strategy. And so cool. a lot of what I'm hoping is to create information systems and to do a lot more of this applied research and work to help develop emergency response strategies to just try and maximize human life and try and save as many people as possible. Exactly like you were saying, just when every second and every, you know, tiny milliliter of resources is on the line. Right. Wow, that's that's some really fascinating work. That sounds uh, just you know the the implications of it and the the possible uh, benefits of it are uh, are just uh, astounding. It's so exciting. And I mean, I can't lie. A lot of that interest comes from just like geeky sides of things too. you know, like I've always loved sci-fi. I always just, I keep a running list of my favorite, uh, like computers from science fiction and stuff. Oh yeah. You know, and a lot of those computers, you know, even though they're, they're science fiction are are kind of built around a lot of the ideas in game theory and operations research. So it's like, heck yeah, we're getting some visibility in the media. (laughs) So, uh, so I think my last question is knowing your love for all of that and, you know, science fiction and, and uh, knowing your love for pulp and and uh, and you know the mathematics side of it, uh, is there any chance that you're going to become a supervillain at some point and start some sort of uh, army? And uh, you know we may have to eventually fight you with giant robots or anything. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, you know I, I really want to keep my um, keep my motives as pure as possible. You <laughs> keep know. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I mean, I, I, as much as I would love a sexy supervillain arc, because oh my gosh, that would be a lot of fun. You know, uh, <laughs> I do think, I do think that in media there is this tendency to villainize technology, and I oh, think absolutely. sometimes for good reasons. You know, right. like we've yeah. definitely seen a lot going on with like Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, and yeah, I do think that sure. that needs to be villainized. Right? Yeah. No. Absolutely. Just about everyone that has a huge uh, company that we've relied on for the past year because of COVID or whatever, um, you know, they, they all have been suddenly come under scrutiny for how much information they want to know. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I think I think a lot of that is, is um, you know, especially when you're working in mathematics, there's this idea of getting carried away uh, and losing sight of what you're applying it to and losing sight of its application right. to reality.
reality. And I think when you develop a model that's devoid of any real world application, and then you try and apply it back to the real world, it's probably not going to go very well. And I feel like <laughs> that's the supervillain aspect. Right. So I think, I, I guess, I, I guess another alternate way of answering your question is my strategy for not becoming a supervillain currently <laughs> um, is, is this idea of, you know, I want to make sure that I am learning from people, that I am teaching these, you know, I'm using machine learning, I'm using artificial intelligence, and I'm teaching these computers to think based off of real, you know, human situations and human emotion and, and human concepts like kindness. And I think we, we oftentimes look at computing as this idea of kind of like, almost like, you know, it's sterile, it's separate from the world, it's something that's completely and utterly synthetic. When in reality, I think what we as as math people need to be focusing on is this idea that the height of mathematics would be being able to imbue models of kindness and altruism and these very complicated kind of human conceptualizations of what is good and what is going to bring good to this world into a computer. That's complicated. That's even higher, you know, uh, I guess higher dimensional than anything that we're necessarily even really doing. And, and that's what I'm striving for. I am not here to slack off and, and make some <laughs> supervillain, you know, models. I'm, I'm really here to try and I guess represent altruism and cooperation and kindness in these models, because I think that's what the world needs, I guess. Well, I, th- I think what you just said about uh, technology and demonizing a lot of it go- comes around full circle what we talked about before about uh, like uh, tropes and movies and books and things about computers getting smart enough to decide they don't need humans or, you know, f- through one wrong calculation, you know, you get uh, Skynet and the Terminator, you get uh, Ultron, you know, and I think we're used to guessing or, or imagining the worst in technology eventually, even if it's your friend to start with eventually it's going to come around and and uh, and do something horrible definitely definitely well and and to that i say you know if i make a mistake if i become a supervillain i will happily be executed by my own robot i think, <laughs> I think that is a go. fantastic way to go out I think it's a good place to stop, too. Uh, Mac, I really appreciate it. Uh, Mac Gagne, mathematical theorist, pulp fiction writer, podcast, and soon to be my partner in crime for a segment we're calling Coffee and Cryptids. Uh, Thank you so much for coming by. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. This has been fantastic. Thank you for joining me for Something From Nothing. Go to sfnpod.com and find all our social media and tell us who you think the ghost of the Gator Ghoul really is. Jinkies, I hope it isn't some old dude in a mask again. Have a good day, and I'll talk to you soon.
I'm Phil. And I'm Kyle. We host the Movie Wars podcast. We pit the most legendary films of all time against one another using our theoretical scorecard, which consists of some classic categories like best cast, as well as off-the-wall categories like which gang would you rather be in from our Goodfellas vs. The Godfather episode, or who would you rather be eaten by, the shark or the T-Rex from our Jurassic Park vs. Jaws episode. And our matchups aren't always obvious. We go out of our way to find connective tissues between the films we choose. You won't want to miss randos, which is the result of us doing hours of research and preparation for each show. You're guaranteed to hear facts that you won't even find in the deepest corners of the internet. Check out episodes like There Will Be Blood versus No Country for Old Men and Total Recall versus Minority Report. If you want to hear a hilarious and informative approach to stacking the greatest films of all time against one another, check out Movie Wars.